Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. So the way the game works is I'm going to put, an, put out an idea to you, and I'd like you to tell me how you would respond to the this idea in a productive manner that's going to create understanding and conversation. For oh, like that's a great game. I know, it is a good that's game. That's a but, really good but, game. It's, by the way, it's totally different than what's your opinion. Yeah. It's what's this your is, approach. I love yes. it. Okay, I love but I'm it. nervous now because you're very <laughs> ped- pedagogically progressive, and I feel like, all right, I'm going to put it out there, and if— Maybe I'm regressive. What do you mean? <laughs> I, put a, I put a little bit of a value to <laughs> All right, ready? As a way of rebalancing those who have been marginalized, the classic canon of Western literature and thought should be jettisoned to some degree from the curriculum. We need to primarily focus on works by women, people of color, and LGBTQ people that reflect marginalized experiences. Those should be taught as classics as well. My favorite thing I have ever seen is the dean of the Columbia Core Curriculum is a brilliant, good man. Like he's, you know, the full package name is Roosevelt Montas. And every year, um, and he's originally from the Dominican Republic. And that's and a great went name to Columbia. for somebody who's in he charge. He went to of- Columbia, yeah. got his PhD in English uh, literature, and is an incredible scholar and incredible educator. And I once watched, um, but he is the steward of the Columbia Core Curriculum, which is a great books curriculum um, in the Western canon. And I've always, I, my, one of my favorite moments that stays with me my whole life is watching a bunch of students tell him about why they should get rid of the core to do exactly this. And he used all of their ideas and explained which book they had rooted their ideas in. So he's like, oh, that's a really, you know, that's a really good analysis of what we're so saying. That's great. Like, <laughs> and I think what that does is show you that so much of the way we think comes from um, this inherited tradition. Um, even if that thinking is going to now allow us to expand the tradition. So I am personally a huge fan in understanding um, our own inheritance and where we come from, um, while acknowledging all the uh, losses of that inheritance. I I do not like the idea of throwing out the gains. Is there value in artificially inserting those who have been left out of that? I think at moments, but I don't think it's productive to act like they were always there. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually very productive to say, here's all the books we're reading. Maybe there's not a female voice yet. Here's exactly why there's not. But you as women and you as men, whoever you are in the world, you're reading them. You're understanding your own inheritance. You're understanding your tradition. And you're being reflective about what's missing. I think later on in the tradition, it's important to integrate. But again, I don't... um, I think you do it in a careful, thoughtful manner that is honest to the world you've inherited. Hmm. I think when you don't know that piece, it's dangerous. Would you say the same? Uh, we had a town hall here. Once do you disagree, by the way? I feel like this is a little too. Well, I'm not allowed to disagree. I'm just But that's moderating. radical moderation. I'm just moderating. This is too par of. What do you mean? <laughs> to no, be radical mo- moderates, we have to argue. We have to argue. And then we'd have to come to a. The problem is I think you're a radical moderate and I'm a radical moderate. I know. So, so you kind we, of agree with we me? We kind of agree with each other. <laughs> but we, when I have guests on who are more liberal or more conservative yeah. in a particular, I, I often push. push I get back. into okay. the. I, I go in both directions. I like doing that. Um, you know, we had. A, uh, we had a town hall here. We have a town hall once a week where students debate an issue. Yeah, I almost um, cried twice at your last town hall. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it Every was... listener should visit a town hall. <laughs> but so it's interesting. I, I will I will give one caveat about that is, so you saw a town hall and people often come and see the town hall and like want to cop or, or do it in their schools. Right. And I always tell them it's, there's so much, it, it's a, 
cultural piece. There, you have to have, I think you were presenting to the faculty, yes. it's about trust. Uh, there needs to be a trust in the building and in that room before you can share you know, with, with everyone. Um, so we had a town hall about the iconography of the South and statues and taking them down or leaving them yeah. up. And do you acknowledge your history? Do you, do you keep it there even when it's, when it's not good? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Would you have taken down all the statues, the Robert E. Lee statues, the... I believe, I, I believe very strongly that um, our religious tradition has done an incredible job of helping us think about repentance and forgiveness. And I think in the American landscape, we have not thought about that enough. Hmm. And I am bothered by the conversation about just taking down Confederate statues and not adding a whole series of monuments. I'm so I'm very uh, of monuments of carvings into the ground. Of I actually think we need to mark the American landscape with um, the challenges of of the, basically of the kind of repentance we need to do as Americans, so that we can enter into a better experience of forgiveness. But I think when we center this conversation on Confederate statues, we're actually missing what is not there. Like it is, it is not. I don't think it's. Um, I, I don't think as Jews we would be comfortable um, with a Germany that had, uh, if it had no understanding of the Holocaust. Right. And right now we live in an America that has no understanding of slavery. I think the lynching museum is an amazing addition to the landscape, but I think we need more of that. Mm -hmm. And I would love the Confederate statue conversation to turn into what should be in the American landscape to make us face our origins mm -hmm. so that we can own it, understand it, and um repent for it and get forgiveness for it. Hmm. In 2020, you're running for what? What am I voting for you? And where can nothing, my listeners nothing, vote? My Stop. I want to work. I want to, I, I, I'm running to come back to Shalheva to see what your students do for Veterans Day. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. It's going to be amazing. Um, okay, let's play the other side of the okay. uh, radical moderation game. Uh, there has been a discussion, I think, I think it's probably been most prominently presented by uh, Jordan Peterson, who's a professor at, I don't know, University of Toronto or something, somewhere up there in our, we, our beloved neighbors up above. Um, you, how you identify is how you identify, meaning if somebody wants to identify as a different gender from their birth, a different category, something in between, that's your right. That's your freedom. But you can't ask me to identify you in, you in that way. That's my right. That's my freedom. Meaning, what are your thoughts about, you know, people This came saying, up in your town hall yesterday. Did it? Yeah. I must have missed that for yeah, a second. Yeah, it's the very end of it. And you can't tell me to say two plus two is five. That's what I've heard parents say. Don't tell me to call a transgender person whatever. Uh, by the way, I see the same debate, not exactly, in uh, religious spheres of smicha, you know, people who get ordination, sorry, rabbinic ordination. You know, is this orthodox? Is it not? Do you call a person rabbi? I, I don't want to tell you what my opinion is, but sort of like, what would you say to a person who's like, no, I'm not calling you by the pronoun you choose. I'm going to call you by the pronoun I choose. I don't understand. I, I understand the emotional stakes for the individual who is claiming certain pronouns. I would love to know more about the emotional stakes for someone who doesn't want to say it because I don't fully understand what the emotional stakes are for them. Um, with the rabbi conversation, I think I understand it a little better. I just want to say I don't have a policy for other people. I want to give you my policy. I love using language to give dignity. Like it's something language can do and it doesn't cost that much. For me, I understand, I empathize again more with the rabbi debate. I know for some rabbis, it does, their stakes are very high for them because they think it challenges religious authority. 
I get that. That's very complicated. I don't know how to answer it. But I do think that language does a lot of damage in the world, and the giving of dignity doesn't feel, for me personally, high stakes enough. I will always just... I always try to use language to give dignity to someone. And if they tell me, they are literally telling me how to do it, I would, I would do it. <laughs> okay, I think people draw distinct distinctions between faith and academic study. I mean, one is very uh, reasoned, uh, very uh, concrete, you can measure it. And one is a little bit more spiritual and emotional and non-quantifiable. And I guess, do, A, do you feel that in your work in some way? Do you have, do you compartmentalize in some way in your life? Are you confronted with that? Meaning you're... Uh, a very proud Jew, yeah. um, and you're in this academic world, and you're trying to be, from what I can gather, kind of nonpartisan and um, or bipartisan. I don't know what you would would refer to it as, but uh, thought, thoughts about that? Yeah, I, t um, I actually have thought a lot about that, um, and I taught this course for a few years called uh, "The History and Ethics of Old Age." And the way I framed the course, and it was really a beautiful experience as a teacher, but we were in the seminar room once a week, and we were on a nursing home floor uh, for the other day of the week. And I organized the class um, in terms of the secular imagination around old age and the religious imagination around old age. And I have found that there is great value to even making the distinction and finding ways to talk about the benefits, the benefits and losses of each form of the imagination. And I don't do it through a Jewish lens. I do it more, you know, I, we read Cotton Mather. We read, like, the Protestant tradition. We read the Catholic tradition. We read the Muslim tradition. Um, but I have found that uh, thinking carefully for me about the gifts of the religious imagination has totally informed my academic life. And I'll just give you an example. My favorite book is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I don't know if you've read it, but John, Reverend John Ames is, like, my literary character. Like, I, like, he's really, I really... I've learned so much from that book. I've learned so much from teaching that book. But it is a book about the, um, for me, it's a book about like the incredible beauty of existence. Like just existence in and of itself. Like how do you honor it? Um, it's a reverend at the end of his life writing a letter to his son. Um, how do you really get to a space where you understand that this incredible gift of being alive? And how do you talk about that in a way that's not necessarily critical, um, but is, but brings people into the miraculous experience of life. Mm. That is not an academic discipline, but I'm able to use this like beautiful book by an author to even put it on the table. Like how does old age look differently when you're about to say goodbye to existence hmm. and you still love exist, like you still love, your, you, you love the miracle of being alive. It's a very different conversation than um, how do you care for the elderly? What medications should you use? What's the paperwork you need to fill out if you're going to spend down your money before you enter a nursing home? And both are right. important conversations. Very important. And it's very important for students to understand that these are like different ways of experiencing physical decline in the lifespan. And they're not necessarily at odds with each other. They no, could. but they're different imaginative worlds. Right. That, I've noticed that's something you've done also. You have this... Um, you, do, you use, I guess, I think they're dialectics, I guess. You, yeah. you, you off, and, and meaning the acknowledgement of it. To, right now, for a moment, we're going to talk about the secular way of viewing end of life. Now we're going to talk about a more religious way or spiritual way of, of the end of life. I saw you, you talked with our faculty um, about here's civil discourse. If we as a community want to have civil discourse, here are the rules around it. We're going to be in a civil discourse moment. You're going to follow the, you know, we're all going to agree to follow right. those rules. And then there are moments which are free speech moments. Are we in a free speech moment where we're, you know, aside from hate speech, we're getting rid of those 
those uh, norms. Yeah. Norms. Sorry. Thank you. Not yeah, yeah. Think better than rules or <laughs> yeah. let's say. Um, so that that's also meaning and the ability to say here in a classroom even. Yeah. We're on a free speech moment. We're not doing the civil discourse norms. Be respectful to some degree, but you know, go at it. We want you to hear what you want to say. And here's a moment we're going to be in the civil discourse. Is that something you tend your brain just goes there with these dialectics and then identifying them and you find that that's a value? I love them. They make me feel so safe as a teacher. I love them so much. I do it constantly. Um, I do it with everything. Like, um, here's how freedom was defined here. I, I love setting up the polls. Mm -hmm. Like, let's start with, you know, how Socrates is thinking about it. And now we're going to go all the way up to, like, Martha Nussbaum. And here are these two definitions. And we're going to spend the entire course figuring out how you get from A to B. Mm. And then I could love tracking students' ideas. Like, on a I, I just find that I can um, teach that way. Like I, you know, you know, you know that I remember I used to have an advisor who's like, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, don't walk into the room without your intellectual armor. And, I was like, and what he meant was like, you need to know enough that you feel confident when you step in the door. And I feel like that that technique for me gives me a lot of confidence to deal with really hard issues mm. here. Wow. By and the we way, did that. I, oh, sorry. I just say one go, thing no, no, go with your with your um, the honors students. One thing that was really, I thought, productive from a bipartisan perspective was even showing how the word liberty gets adapted and used um, by conservatives and by liberals, but they both believe in the word. Yeah. And they and just anchoring these two poles in this common, like setting up the two poles and anchoring it in this common language, let all these students just feel like they're on the same, now they're on the same map, right? Pretty amazing, yeah. yeah. The, t the moral taste receptors, is right. Like, like every, right? Right. Liberty matters. It's just often used and framed in in different ways. For those li the listeners can't see Dr. Twill, but she gets you got very animated, which <laughs> yeah. is you're very passionate about it. Which is, and I've seen you teach, and it's it's remarkable. Tell me about your interfaith work. I see that you've done work with you know um, other faith groups. What inspires you to do that? What have you learned? Is there something that you know uh, different faiths have that other faiths could learn from? I, could you share a little bit about that with us? So Civic Spirit is the um, project I've been running, and it's um, it's a civic engagement project for uh, 13 Jewish and Catholic schools in New York, um, in the New York, New Jersey area. And in this summer, we had this amazing institute where um, Jewish and Catholic educators came together to study American founding documents and pedagogic approaches to teaching um civic responsibility. So this is the phrase I've also used at Chalhevet. Their students are about to inherit the country. What do they need to know to get there, right? That's the purpose of the Institute. Um, it was so beautiful to be in a room with um, people of faith who, who really teach for that reason. Like I was so just like, I was really touched. Like when you started talking to the educators about why they do what they do, it's because they are like people of, with great faith. Like great faith in um, in their traditions, great faith in their students, like, and they bring that into the room. So I don't know if I do interfaith. Sounds like you're mixing, maybe. I don't know, but I would say this is um, a moment where people of different faiths have come to admire one another um, and share in the pursuit of how do you how do you teach American responsibility as people anchored in religious traditions. And there were just so many beautiful, I mean, I'll tell you one moment that really affected me. Um, one of our schools, uh, LaSalle Academy, is a school on the Lower East Side, um, and it's a, it serves a low-income population, and it's all boys. And the principal, who's head of school, has been very involved in civic spirit. Um, 
Um, she asked, we had a priest and a rabbi. Rabbi Sarna came from NYU. He probably, sure. maybe he's been on this podcast. He's a great uh, radical moderate. Yeah. Um, and we had a priest from NYU Law School. And the, Kathy, the head of school, asked him, I have all these students and they don't feel, how do I make them feel connected? Like, how do I make them feel like this is their country and they're a part of it? And the priest like bent down and looked at Kathy and said, you need to tell them that God loves them. And I was like, oh, right. Hmm. I was, it was like this breathtaking moment. And I remember all the, you know, we're a lot of Orthodox Jewish day school teachers. Right. I mean, we don't say things like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but it was such a powerful thing. Like, if you don't feel loved, you don't feel you matter, why, why are you going to participate? Right. And it launched this incredible conversation about, like, what it, there's so many gifts in our religious traditions to anchor civic life. Like, that you feel you are loved, that you feel that you matter, that you come from deep sense of community, um, that you love that you have freedom of religion. Yeah. Like, all these things anchor your relationship to America. And I think that, for me, that has been the gift of these multi-faith initiatives. Like, just when you hear something that's different from you, but also um, touches you, yeah. you, you start to realize the gifts in your, own, in your own community. Before we went on air, you and I were talking about Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, just very briefly. And I was sharing how profoundly moved I was when the, the first time I read it, which was in my mid-30s, which is kind of, for me, wild after I read it. What, what struck me was, and again, maybe for people who paid attention in high school or even part of college, um, is that uh, how intertwined religion and civics used to be. Um, and I have a theory about sort of why they've gone so in such drastically different ways, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why, why does it seem like we're literally, it's not even we're marching on two different tracks. It almost like if you imagined a protest, one side would be people who are, you know, progressives who want to make the world a better place, and the other side are religious people who want to make the world a better place, one in a secular way and one in a religious way. Why? What's going on? I, I actually think about that a lot. I don't have an easy answer. I have answers I'm sort of playing with that I haven't had a chance to research yet. But one answer I've been playing with is that um, after Martin Luther King, the um, I think particularly on the left became very enamored with the language of social science. And the right became very enamored with religious language. And it started to make it seem as if mm. religious language was in the domain of the right. And the language of social science became the language of the left, which is which is great for research, but doesn't have the moral. I mean, right? Like it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't know. I don't know how to be moved by that. So when I read King or Lincoln or Douglas, I am so moved. But I'm moved because of the way they wield moral authority and moral language. Mm. Um, and something I've been really trying to both under. I think I, I said this on Monday night, but I think religion in the public square really is valuable and really is dangerous. And how we utilize it well um, is something I, I wanna train religious leaders for. Like I really want more religious leaders to feel like they can use their values and religious life to enter the public square in a way that feels compassionate um, and galvanizing for people. Because right now I think it's heard so differently depending on which party you're in. Yeah. Like it's heard almost as a judgment and we don't hear King that way. Yeah. Somehow he managed to weave the two of them together so seamlessly and to be so moving to everyone. But I think your students feel that here. I think they really feel it here. 
Like they feel like when they're learning Tanakh or they're learning Gemara, like it speaks to who they are as people in the world and shapes their moral lives in a way that matters for how they go out as adults. And mm -hmm. I think like how do we do that for the country in a way that feels nourishing and not painful hmm. is, is a great, is a, for me, is a very urgent question right now. We need moral language so badly right now. Right. That resonates with meaning with people who have fluency, meaning ki kids who are in a school, yeah. like, let's say like Shalavet, where there's a religious and a moral component, both secular and religious, and to, to figure out how to blend those so that th they can talk to everybody in some way. We need a it. Absolutely, and I think when you see leaders now who have religious traditions that they're grounded in, it helps them understand like what is the deeper value at stake beyond party politics? Mm -hmm. What's the deeper value at stake in our humanity? And how we bring that into the public square is more urgent than ever. Hmm. I wasn't going to ask a follow-up or, or share my thought a little bit, but I'm going to. And my sound engineer is about to hold up the amount of time I have left. I can see him playing with his phone. And I have one more topic that I want to ask you about. But for me, I, and, and something you just said made me think maybe I'm even on to something. I think the breakdown can be traced in some ways, and there's always, it's multivariable, to debates around uh, abortion and LGBTQ issues because what I find is is that, and the reason I thought about this is because you're talking about our students. I do, I agree. I think our students are so steeped in relig religious traditions, moralities, the text, and also in the, you know, the American way of life and values and freedom and democracy and, and somehow are blending that for the most part pretty seamlessly. The rare occasion where this tension rears its head is around some of these issues where you're sort of like, well, I know LGBTQ people. I don't understand why the Bible says it's not allowed. And as I, I think there became a real divide there, meaning there was no way to march together on that issue. Religious groups, fundamentalist religious groups were saying, listen, we love you as a person, but we can't support the LGBTQ from a religious lifestyle perspective and progressives or you know, social progressives were saying, what, what do you mean? This is a human being created in the divine image, but like not necessarily even using that religious language. Maybe when they use that religious language, by the way, that's when you see some movement. Okay, all right, you win. Fine, Dr. Twill. <laughs> um, no, but I, I wondered, and I think all of the pieces combined, but I do think that's where a lot of the split, at least from my perspective, the timing and what I'm reading and like where it starts to split, I see, you know, Liberals, sorry for using broad terms, but liberals looking at religious people like Neanderthals from the Stone Ages, like you still believe that stuff, and religious people looking at liberals as like, do you have any values or morals that are timeless or you're literally just making them up as you go along? That's the the vibe. And then you have, you know, John Stewart, who is hilarious, but again, I think very divisive. And you have that, that dog, the puppet dog. I don't remember its name, but the puppet dog. And they're mocking everybody. And it's like just, and, and they, they say like, Look at the other side. Look at the religious people. They're just loonies. And look at the, you know, the liberals. They're just, you know, no morals. You know, they just make stuff up. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. It's more. No, I just say that I'm. I've been very touched by watching the Pope recently, because I think he has spoken about the struggle there, mm -hmm. while treating people like they are, Vitzel and Elohim. Like yeah. I really think that it is a religious discipline to enter the world as if. Every individual is made in the image of God, and you treat people that way. And I think you might be able to alert to alert people to the struggle that that actually does for the tradition. Right. It is painful to say, like, I, under, I deeply empathize with people who have to say no because their religious tradition tells them that, and it makes them really uncomfortable. Yeah. But they don't have a way to say yes yet. 
right. or they don't know how to do things. And I think that um, I know this is hard and maybe this isn't really realistic, but I think alerting um, more people to the religious struggle that that is yeah. and letting people understand what what you're trying to bring into the world and uphold and pass down um, while responding to in an empathetic, compassionate way to the reality in front of you. To the human pain that you see. Yeah, like, I'm not saying that is in any way easy, but I don't see, I do think that's part of being a religious person. Yeah, we need more of that. Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, the chief rabbi of England, recently put out a pamphlet, which was very controversial. He got yeah. in a lot of trouble, but it was or a book for educators about how we uh, deal and work with students in the uh, Jewish schools in England, um, which shared a lot of that sense of pain and being torn and not having an answer, needing to be uphold the tradition and at the same time, you know, uh, create space in his, in himself for these people he saw in pain in front of him or we see in pain in front of us. So, and I also feel like there's like a religious ritual language um, that I've, I've been sorry, we were just talking about the Pope, but I remember when the Pope washed um, the feet of migrants. It didn't solve the migration problem. It didn't, it wasn't a policy solution, but it was a deeply profound religious gesture mm -hmm. that gave uh, dignity and humanity. And I, I wonder if we need to dig into our own traditions to see what, I think we have more available to us that we don't always know how to uh, bring in, uh, bring into a conversation. And we're scared to access sometimes because we think somehow it's the ghost as you referred yeah. to our ghost uh, community. community, is that, you know, if we start showing dignity to even, let's say, I mean, we all, we always get into Israel and Palestinians here on the show, and it's just one thing, so I need, I have a mandatory mention of it, and like, l acknowledging the pain and suffering of the Palestinian people, does that open us suddenly now to, you know, is there a right and a wrong, and are we doing something wrong, as opposed to, no, there's people who are suffering, and how do we give them dignity, even if that's something we have to do, no matter what meaning. I think there's a lot of parallels there. All right, last question, because okay. I'm gonna get in trouble. Okay. Um, so, and it's a broad question, you can answer. I have four subparts to it. I'm just gonna throw Whoa. it out there and you can just <laughs> So you've been teaching this course at Shell Habit about responsible citizenship. I don't know how else to sum it up. You've been out Beautiful. here as a scholar yeah. in residence for the week, it's been incredible. Um, and the reason I started the podcast is because I think that's something that people have lost sight of, the arguments, the common good, where, like how come people aren't thinking about, you know, what's best for the country? They're thinking about what's best for my own, uh, you know, pr particular group. It's It seems to be a particularly fractious political atmosphere. So why do you think there's a need to focus on it as individuals? Meaning, okay, it's great, we should be improving it at the government level, at the community level, but coming to a place like Shalhavet, talking with the students, what is citizenship, responsibility, how has your experience been here? Um, it doesn't have to be a commercial, you don't have to give, I, I'm just interested because I've seen you throughout the the week here and you just look very invigorated and I know you keep saying like, this is amazing, this is great. Something maybe, what's your biggest learning from the week? Go. And that's it, all of that, I don't know, I don't, I don't have a particular question, but I'm just interested. How do I respond I, yeah. to it? Um, I need your students to, to run the country. What do you mean? <laughs> That's why I'm doing this. You can have some of them. <laughs> there are some no. that I'm happy to give you. No, I mean, I, I think that um, we need, l listen, we need, first of all, we need intergenerational conversations. And we need young people to come up and run the country. Um, and we need to start preparing them in high school. Like, I, I, one thing that really has upset me is I see students inheriting the country during a transition year of their life. They go from their home community to their college community. We would never do bar bat mitzvahs that way. 
right? Like you need a mentor, you need friends, you need a sense of community. And so right now I feel like no, it's nobody's responsibility. It's not the college, it's not the high school. And what I think, I think it actually probably has to be the high school. You have to be preparing citizens to inherit the country and they have to be registered to vote and know that upon leaving high school, they are now ready for self-governance. That doesn't get you into an Ivy League school tomorrow. Yeah. So how are, why would schools do that? It should get you into an Ivy League school. It's ah. the same skills that you need to be an excellent student. That's true. You That's need to problem point. solve. You need to be able to have conversations. You need to have rigorous text knowledge. Um, and you need to be able to apply past information to current situations. Those are some basic college level skills. If you can talk publicly and write, you're golden. So I feel like if you do that, you're ready. So I, I do think that civic skills should be college skills. Um, and what have I learned at Shalhevet? Um, that your students have a deep sense of, I mean, I said this yesterday, but they have such a deep sense of belonging in this school and in this community and in this country, and I think are completely dedicated both to honoring what they've been given, but also to improving it for others. And so you're doing a wonderful job, and it was, it was a gift to be here. Hi, thank you, Dr. Twiel, for joining us on the Radical Moderation Podcast. Remember, if you enjoyed it, uh, please give us a five-star rating. If you didn't, you're welcome to give us a lower-star rating or just don't leave a rating at all. It's up to you. But um, it would really help others to listen. We've uh, increased the listenership, I think that's a word, over the last year and a half, and I'd love to continue to do so because I think what we're doing here is really important. Uh, follow us on social media. The Twitter handle is at RadModeration. Facebook.com forward slash Radical Moderation. And of course, you can always email me with questions or comments or feedback or corrections or criticism or you name it at a.segal at shalhevet.org, S-H-A-L-H-E-V-E-T.org. Dr. Twill, thank you so, so much. This was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you. 